This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Happening now, breaking news. Israel appears to unleash a massive new air assault on northern Gaza. Flares lighting up the sky while rockets fly and explosions boom. CNN, of course, is on the ground as this powerful new Israeli offensive unfolds. Also breaking an ominous new warning from Hamas as the Israeli military says it has Gaza City completely surrounded. A Hamas political leader saying dozens of hostages are subject to the same, quote, death and destruction as others in Gaza. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer reporting live from Israel, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. We're following the breaking news. We're live here in the Middle East on a night of intense warfare in Israel's battle against Hamas in Gaza. Our cameras capturing truly extraordinary images in Gaza as we follow this breaking story uh, with our team of correspondents. First, let's go right to Nick Robertson. He's in Sterot, Israel, with a direct view of the skies over Gaza. Nick, you're very close to Gaza right now. Tell our viewers what we've been seeing, because this seems to be a powerful new chapter in the Israeli assault against Hamas. Yeah, Wolf, we're looking down right now into the northeastern corner of the Gaza Strip, looking down towards Beit Hanun, which for half an hour was just swathed in and covered in the illumination of flares and smoke on the ground. We were hearing detonations, seeing rockets fired in, hearing artillery being fired into Beit Hanun. It appeared to be the sort of illumination and the sort of smokescreen you would expect troops on the ground to be using if they were maneuvering to be going into this urban environment. Beit Hanun has been bit hit very heavily over the past few weeks by Israeli airstrikes and artillery. The IDF has been warning the civilian population to leave the area. Many civilians have been caught up, killed and injured uh, in, the, in the fire in Gaza, according to the Min Ministry of Health, the Hamas-led Ministry of Health. Uh, in there, more than 9,000 Palestinians have been killed, uh, t more than 22,000 injured. But in Beit Hanun tonight, it appears as if there is a significant IDF offensive underway. The other thing that we're learning from the IDF is that just a few miles south of Beit Hanun, the much more densely populated Gaza city, the IDF says is now surrounded, that they are using uh, direct uh, and intelligence-led fire, precise fire on Hamas targets there. The commanders of 
of the IDF have been warning their troops that they are now in enemy territory. And we know that Hamas has been using uh, shoulder-launched uh, anti-tank weapons, anti-tank rockets that have been penetrating some of the heavily armored tanks and armored personnel carriers. So this is a very dangerous fight for the, for the troops in there, dangerous for the civilians. And that's why it appears the illumination is being used, the smoke screens are being used to allow the idea to advance or take control of certain positions uh, down there in Gaza or around Beit Hanun. We don't know precisely because the IDF doesn't give precise details. We can't see precisely what's happening uh, un underneath all of that illumination, but we can see there have been significant explosions. We've also seen Hamas fire rockets, at least two rockets out of Gaza this evening, intercepted by Iron Dome as they flew north from here, Wolf, towards central Israel. Nick, uh, this uh, major Israeli air campaign that we've been seeing now for the past hour uh, over northern Gaza, what does this tell us about the Israeli ground campaign that's clearly also intensifying? Well, it tells us several things. One is it's absolutely not backing off. And we knew that it wouldn't because the commander of the IDF, General Halevi, had said and told his troops, you're in the middle of a fight. This is going to be a long fight. We're going to continue, continue it to the end. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been uh, in his message to troops as well has been sending a very similar message. So it does appear that what we are witnessing here is the next phase of our operations in this incursion into Gaza, one that was focused an hour ago, or maybe even right now, it's still underway in Beit Hanun, focused there. And Gaza City, a major city and, and densely populated in the northern part of the, the Gaza Strip, surrounded, potentially indicating that the IDF has quite literally cut the Gaza Strip in two, north and south, Wolf. Nick Robertson, uh, stay safe over there. We'll get back to you. We're watching all the breaking news unfold. Right now, I want to go to CNN's Jeremy Diamond. He's not very far away from where Nick is. and He's in Ashkelon, Israel, which is uh, pretty close to Gaza as well. Uh, Jeremy, how does what we're seeing over the skies of northern Gaza tonight, how does that fit into what we know about the ground war, at least so far? We are now in the sixth day of this expanded ground operation by Israeli troops, and uh, clearly the Israelis want to signal very strongly to Hamas that they have their stronghold of Gaza City encircled, as we heard tonight from the IDF spokesman uh, Daniel Hagari. Uh, but what they are also showing with this fighting is that uh, it is ongoing in various parts of northern Gaza. Even if they say that they have Gaza City encircled, they clearly are still fighting on the outskirts of Gaza City as well. Beit Hanun is the northeasternmost city uh, in Gaza. And this battle that we are watching now tonight, which has clearly kicked into a higher gear, it began uh, earlier today, Wolf, as we were standing uh, in Sterod, not far from where Nick is today. Uh, we watched all day as there was a small arms fire. There were mortars being fired inside of Gaza, uh, per very likely by Hamas fighters, and also artillery being fi fired from Israel into the city of Beit Hanun and into other neighborhoods, uh, uh, other areas of Gaza, including, it appears, uh, the Jabalia uh, refugee camp. And so it's very clear that Israeli officials know that as much as they can encircle a city because of the network 
of underground tunnels that Hamas maintains, they also still face the danger of Hamas fighters popping up outside that city as well and in different areas. And clearly, they have not cleared all of the territory from uh, the border with Gaza up until Gaza City. That, that act of fighting in Beit Hanun tells us exactly that. And so even if they are in Gaza City, they are clearly still dealing with Hamas fighters outside of Gaza City as well. Jeremy, uh, there's a new statement that just came out from Hamas about the fighting. Give our viewers the details. That's right, Wolf. Uh, Ismail Haniya, Hamas's a political leader, uh, in a statement tonight is making clear that this Israeli ground offensive, in his words, is putting at risk not only those civilians inside of Gaza and his fighters, but also, he says, uh, the hostages that his militant group, as well as other organizations inside of Gaza, are still holding. He says that hostages held inside of Gaza are subject to, quote, the same death and destruction as everybody else in the Gaza Strip. And he writes uh, that this continued ground offensive by Israel, uh, quote, uh, uh, will come at a great cost, including, quote, to the lives of its prisoners and those who are exposed to the same thing, the killing and destruction to which our people are exposed. Uh, Hania also blames Bibi Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, for this ongoing war, saying that Hamas has proposed an immediate ceasefire for the openings of crossings into Israel, the exchange of prisoners, and what he calls the opening of a political path to the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. Of course, these are kind of broad uh, strokes uh, claims being made by the Hamas leader who ov obviously understands very well how to try and play the kind of media campaign that his organization has played so well for several years now. Uh, what is not clear is the details of those proposals that Hamas is making and what the terms actually are. Uh, we know that the Israelis have rejected the idea of a ceasefire, but they appear perhaps open to some kind of brief cessation of hostilities in order to allow for an exchange of prisoners or for hostages, civilian hostages being held inside of Gaza to be released. Whether or not such a deal can come together remains unclear as of yet, but we know that those negotiations between Israel and Hamas mediated by the Qataris are very much still ongoing. And the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, arriving in Israel uh, signals that those talks are very much still alive uh, and that they will continue. Jeremy Diamond reporting for us from Eshkelon in Israel. Jeremy, stand by. We'll get back to you. I want to go to the White House right now, uh, where this hour we're learning about a blunt new message President Biden is sending to Israel. CNN's MJ Lee is joining us from the White House. MJ, tell us about this new reporting. Yeah, Wolf, as Israel continues its airstrikes and continued ground operations in Gaza, there is a growing concern here at the White House about the continued humanitarian suffering and the rising civilian death toll. Uh, sources tell CNN that uh, the Israeli airstrikes on the Jabalia refugee camp this week was particularly concerning and jarring to President Biden and some of his top aides, and that there is a growing recognition here at the White House that Israel really has limited time to continue its current operation in its current form uh, before the outrage and the uproar uh, about the humanitarian suffering reaches a tipping point. And to that end, we are told President Biden and some of his top national security officials have been urging their Israeli counterparts about what they see as this new reality with growing bluntness. Uh, we are also told that some of Biden's advisors believe that there are weeks, uh, not months, before the uh, the 
the pressure on the U.S. government to publicly call for a ceasefire uh, actually becomes untenable. Of course, we saw some of this playing out uh, last night when the president himself was confronted by a protester at a private fundraiser. Uh, but for now, Wolf, U.S. officials are publicly uh, refusing to call for a ceasefire, saying that what they would like to see are humanitarian pauses. White House spokesperson John Kirby describing uh, what those humanitarian pauses would look like earlier today. We're really not just talking about like one pause. What we're trying to do is explore the idea of as many pauses that might be necessary to continue to get aid out and to continue to work to get people out safely, including hostages. U.S. officials are, of course, continuing to press their Israeli counterparts about the humanitarian efforts that they say need to continue. And to that end, we have seen now uh, 74 Americans, according to U.S. officials, that have left Gaza and are now safely in Egypt. Wolf. MJ Lee reporting from the White House for us. Uh, MJ, thank you very much. Coming up. Much more of our breaking news coverage from here in Israel, where tonight we've seen a massive new Israeli air assault on Gaza. Plus, two of Donald Trump's children take the stand in New York. What they had to say about allegations they helped commit fraud. Stay with us. Our special coverage continues right here in The Situation. We're back with the breaking news. Israeli forces unleashing an intense aerial bombardment of Gaza that simply lit up the sky just a little while ago. We were showing it to our viewers live. The war clearly escalating tonight on more than one front for that matter. Seeing as Jim Shudo is on the scene for us in northern Israel. Jim, tell us what you've been seeing there today because it's very significant. Well, Wolf, it's notable to, to see Israeli ground forces advancing further, it appears, tonight in Gaza, because what we witnessed up here today was one of the busiest days of airstrikes, rocket strikes from southern Lebanon into Israel. Uh, a warning, you might say, from Iran-backed Hezbollah militants inside southern Lebanon. They, they've been firing into Israel, northern Israel, for the last several days, consistently every day, but this was the, the highest pace we've certainly seen. In fact, our team uh, witnessed the Iron Dome missile defense system take out two of those rockets above, above our heads, though one of them came down and hit uh, the main street of Kiryat Shimona, one of the communities up here as well. And if those missile strikes, those rocket strikes from southern Lebanon were intended to warn Israel away from uh, more aggressive ground operations in Gaza does not appear as what you're witnessing, what we're witnessing down in the south tonight, uh, does not appear that that warning uh, held or is, is holding Israel back. Uh, another sign of, of Israel's preparations, we found ourselves in the midst of a special, or special forces exercise today, live fire exercise in the north, very close to the Syrian border. Uh, some of the 70,000 IDF forces now deployed to the north to defend the northern border, uh, participating in this exercise, in effect, to keep their skills sharp, prepare to defend in the event of a greater incursion, greater involvement from Hezbollah. And I think it, you could also read that as a signal to those forces in Lebanon and Syria that Israel is ready if they do come. The final thing I'll say, Wolf, is a great deal of attention focused tomorrow on the words of Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah. He's going to be speaking uh, to his followers in Lebanon and around the region tomorrow for the first time since the start of these latest hostilities. 
question many Israeli officials, U.S. intelligence officials are asking is, will he order his forces, in effect, Hezbollah, to intervene in this war more aggressively than they already have? Those rockets we saw today, perhaps a sign, but we'll, we're going to be listening to those words very closely tomorrow. It's interesting, Jim, because uh, I suspect, based on a briefing I had today with a senior Israeli military officer, I suspect that what's going on in Gaza right now is at least in part uh, designed to send a message to Hezbollah and to Iran, for that matter, don't mess with Israel. Because if you try anything and open a second yeah. front from southern Lebanon into Israel, you're going to pay a huge, huge price. The Air Force yeah. of Israel will come in, the ground force will come in, and you won't believe what is about to happen. That was the message I think the Israelis are also in part sending tonight. I think you're right, uh, Wolf. And, and we saw, by the way, in response to that rocket barrage that, that we witnessed today, we saw Israeli warplanes flying overhead, the IDF saying they struck targets in southern Lebanon today. And you couple those Air Force strikes, you, you, you couple that with Israel's own artillery barrage into southern Lebanon with those exercises we saw today. And of course, the action we've been seeing live on our air these last few minutes, and that is I think, as you say, Israel saying that if need be, uh, we will defend this country on all fronts. Yes, indeed. Uh, that's what they're saying. And presumably that's what they'll be doing. Jim Shudo, stay safe up there. We'll get back to you. That Kiryat Shmona, by the way, fortunately, a few days ago, the Israelis evacuated 20,000, 30,000 residents, Israeli residents of Kiryat Shmona. So those rockets came in, but there were very few people there that are left there right now. I want to bring in CNN military analysts right now to discuss the hugely dramatic developments, a new phase in this war unfolding right now. Retired Colonel Cedric Layton is with us. Retired General Wesley Clark is with us as well. General Clark, when you see these extraordinary images coming in of this intense Israeli air assault, the new ground incursion into Gaza, what do you think is taking place right now? Oh, they're moving to a, a escalatory phase, Wolf. They're going to go deeper in. They may uh, insert by helicopter to seize more ground. Um, they're, they're getting targets. They're not just bombing uh, buildings without targets. So they're, they're collecting communications. They're watching movements. Uh, they, they, they have targets and, and they intend to get this over with. It's not gonna be like Mosul where they take nine months. They're not gonna do that. As they evaluate it, uh, they're willing to put greater risk on the civilians in order to accomplish the military objectives than perhaps we would have. When I was briefed earlier today by a senior Israeli military officer, a general, uh, this officer said, this is going to go on for a while. Don't expect this war to go on just a few more days or even a few more weeks. They're thinking about months in order to get the job done. Their mission right now is twofold. They say the first mission is to destroy Hamas as much as possible. The second mission is to get those hostages out safely from Gaza right now. And Colonel Layton, let me get your reaction to these incredible scenes we've seen over the past 45 minutes or so live here on CNN. Yeah, well, I think the, uh, you know, what you're seeing is uh, what exactly what General Clark described. Plus, it may also be the precursor to some more ground movements. Uh, Nick Robertson mentioned a lot of smoke, and we can see some of that here in these images. 
it looks to me like they might be using the cover of smoke to move some of their infantry forces into areas around Betanun, which is that northeastern town uh, in Gaza. So that might be a way for them to move forward, take care of that pocket of Hamas fighters, which are supposed to be in Beit Hanun, and then move from there into Gaza itself. We know also that they've surrounded Gaza, at least, or at least in the process of doing that. And if that is correct, then it seems as if these movements are part of a campaign that is designed to move forward very, very quickly. And uh, in, you know, in spite of them preparing people for a long war, which is actually the right thing to do, uh, they are also moving as quickly as they can on the military front in order to uh, gain as much territory as possible and destroy as much of Hamas as possible. Yeah, that's their goal uh, right now. General Clark, uh, set the scene for us. What do you expect the next step for the IDF will be? They're going to go deeper uh, toward Gaza City. Um, they're going to uh, clear it as they move. They've got to figure out what the tunnel network is, what the threat is from the rear and the flanks. They're going to put more forces in on the ground to do the security and bring the logistics up. And, um, and they're going to hope that these intense bombardments further incentivize the Palestinian population to leave the area north of, uh, in North Gaza. They've, they've got to evacuate. That's what the Israelis want. And they're going to draw Hamas to them. And, uh, and hopefully Hamas then attacks, this is what the Israelis want, attacks these armored formations that are there with the heavy firepower and the artillery. General Wesley Clark, Colonel Cedric Layton, uh, guys, thank you very, very much. We're following all of the breaking news right now. Up next, uh, there's other important news we're following as well, including very testy moments in court today as two of Donald Trump's children actually took the stand in a case that could decide the future of the Trump organization. Plus, we're closing in on a key vote in the U.S. House of Representatives, a standalone bill funding aid to Israel without additional help for Ukraine. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have much more on all the breaking news coming out of Israel and Gaza in just a few moments, but we're also following another major story back in the United States. Only moments ago, court wrapped up in New York City where not one but two of Donald Trump's sons took the stand 
The former president and his company are facing a civil fraud trial accused of repeatedly lying about the value of their assets. CNN's Kara Scannell is outside the courthouse in Manhattan for us. Kara, there were some tense moments in court today, I understand. Tell our viewers what happened. Well, Wolf, um, Eric Trump took the stand after his brother, Donald Trump Jr., had finished testifying. It was just before noon, and immediately the attorney general's office homed in on these financial statements that are at the heart of this case. They asked Eric Trump if he had any involvement in preparing the statements. He said he didn't. He said he wasn't even aware of them until this case came to fruition. Well, then the assistant attorney general asking the question spent an hour and 15 minutes showing Eric Trump emails going back to 2010, showing him clips of his video deposition that was taken earlier this year where he was asked about these financial statements trying to get him to concede that he had known about these statements and that he did respond to questions from the company's controller about how to value some of these properties. An email was shown with Eric Trump saying to put a value of about $200 million on a golf course. Well, Eric Trump dug in, becoming agitated at one point, visibly frustrated, raising his voice and saying that he fully understood that they had financial statements, but he said, I had no involvement nor ever worked on my father's financial statements. So trying to draw a distinction between any financial information he might be providing, but these actual statements that are at the heart of the case that the judge has already ruled to be fraudulent. Now, his testimony is going to continue into tomorrow, and that's because at the end of the day, as the attorney general's office was about to ask him about his, his asserting his Fifth Amendment rights during a deposition several years ago, his lawyers objected, and one of Trump's attorneys, Chris Keis, had mentioned something to the judge referring to his clerk, and this is the clerk that has been at the center of the gag order where the former president has been fined for making references to her. Well, the judge got irritated by that, suggested that Trump's attorney was misogynist for referencing her and said he might even expand this gag order. But Trump's lawyer said that they needed to make a record that they thought there was some bias in the case because the judge was conferring with his law clerk, judge pounding the table saying they were not allowed to know about these private communications. And he told everyone he would see them back tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Wolf. We'll be watching Kara Scannell in New York for us. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to bring in right now uh, our chief legal affairs correspondent, Paula Reed, and former federal prosecutor, Shan Wu. And Paula, let me start with you. Uh, a lot of this testimony that we've heard uh, has, has been really in the weeds when it comes to how corporate finances actually work. What has been your biggest takeaway, at least so far? Well, Wolf, those weeds are, are the financial documents that are at the heart of this case. And here we heard Eric Trump insist that he had nothing to do with statements regarding the financial fitness of this company. But then the attorney general's office was able to repeatedly present other statements and evidence contradicting what Eric was saying on the stand. And that's why this became at times uh, pretty tense. And you saw his temper kind of flare as the government pretty effectively undercut his credibility on the stand. Interesting. Shan Wu, uh, do you think Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. have come across as credible witnesses? Uh, no, not at all, actually, Wolf. I think uh, this tactic of theirs trying to totally distance themselves, saying that they know nothing about the financial statements, plus the admissions that came out from Eric under the examination from the AG, I think it really hurts their credibility. Uh, not to mention that last tidbit that uh, Kara gave us about that exchange about the judge's law clerk. I mean, it's unfathomable to me why his defense counsel are using that kind of tactic here. What they should be doing is trying to show the judge that there was some good faith efforts made. There could have been honest mistakes, not this notion that 
we were running the company, but we don't know anything about what's happening on the financial statements of the company. That just is not very credible. And given that the judge already found fraud, and they're at the question of what kind of punishment's going to be you know, given out here, I just don't think it's helping their case very much. Paula, Ivanka Trump may have to testify as well if she loses her appeal. What kinds of questions would she be expected to face? Well, Wolf, as you just noted, she is still trying to avoid having to take the stand next week. Now, she is no longer a defendant in this case, but prosecutors insist she still has personal knowledge about the Trump organization and is still very much entwined with the family business. Now, if she does take the stand next week, it is likely that the questions will focus uh, on a hotel here in Washington, D.C. that they previously owned, her involvement in that deal, and how she profited from that sale. But because she has a more limited role in this case, the questioning for her will likely be a lot shorter and a lot more narrowly focused. Interesting. Shannon, what do you expect to happen when former President Donald Trump himself takes the stand next week? Well, I think the big question is, will he take the stand? I, I think he will. I mean, he doesn't have to, but he probably for reasons of ego, as well as not wanting the adverse inference that can be drawn in a civil case, if he takes the fifth, he probably will take it. Uh, I expect more of the same, probably a lot more bluster, more like Don Jr. than like Eric. But this notion that he would have relied on the accountants and that there was some sort of disclaimer that absolves him of any liability. And again, I think all of that, Wolf, is not really going to go as an effective way of lessening the sanction that may occur because it's really still trying to litigate liability, saying we didn't really do anything wrong, even though the judge has already found fraud. So unless Trump is able to really get at this notion of we were involved and we made some honest mistakes here and fine, you found this fraudulent, but we shouldn't be hit with the heaviest of the fines or punishment. If he just does the same tactic as his sons did, I don't think it's going to be very effective either. Interesting. Shan Wu, Paula Reed, uh, to both of you, thank you very much. We'll stay on top of this story for sure. Just ahead. Anti-Semitic and Islamophobic uh, incidents are certainly on the rise across the United States, with college campuses becoming a front line for heated, sometimes violent divisions over the Israel-Hamas war. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. We're following political developments back in the United States as well. Uh, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley trying to take advantage of Ron DeSantis' faltering campaign and seize the second position behind Donald Trump. CNN's Jeff Zeleny is out there on the campaign trail watching all of this, watching Haley in New Hampshire specifically right now. Jeff, how has Nikki Haley managed to close the gap with Ron DeSantis? Well, for one of the ways is by holding town hall meetings like this, which she'll be about to be doing here this evening in New Hampshire, taking many questions from voters, both here in New Hampshire, also in the early voting states of Iowa and South Carolina. If you take a look at a couple recent polls just this week, including our poll from South Carolina, you can see how she is in a strong second place. But, of course, uh, far behind former President Donald Trump, who has a commanding lead in all of these states as well as nationally. But she has eclipsed uh, the Florida governor there. But if you look at an Iowa poll, of course, Iowa is going to open this contest on January 15th. She is locked in a dead heat 
with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis again well below Donald Trump. But Wolf, as we've been traveling across New Hampshire with her, talking to voters, they say they like her strength. They say they like her seriousness. Also her attention to foreign policy, which she's been talking about throughout the course of the campaign. Today she weighed in very strongly on the question of funding for Israel and Ukraine. And now you're hearing this story of, do we fund Israel or do we fund Ukraine? Don't get involved in that. Because you know what? America can never be so arrogant to think we don't need friends. You want to see the connection? This isn't just about a war in Europe. It's not just about a war in the Middle East. This isn't just about China on the march. When all of this happened, what's the first thing Putin did? He didn't call Netanyahu in Israel. He called and invited Hamas to Russia. So, of course, she's a former governor of South Carolina, as well as a former U.N. ambassador during the Trump administration. So she has been talking about foreign policy throughout the course of the campaign. Of course, now it is front and center in the conversation. But, Wolf, when uh, you talk to voters, there's no doubt they are giving her a look because of her strong debate performances in the first two Republican debates. She has a third Republican debate next week. Of course, she's on a collision course with the Florida governor here. But well, for all the talk uh, of her her rise, and in clear, uh, it's clear she has been rising, it's still a race for second place that she is locked in. The ultimate question is, is this a winning moment for her in the end when she would eventually hopefully take on Donald Trump? In her view, we will see if that should happen. But there is no question about it. Donald Trump, the former president, still has a very commanding lead in all early primary states and indeed around the country. Wolf? No question about that, Jeff Zeleny in Nashua, New Hampshire for us. Jeff, thank you very much. Meanwhile, college campuses have become a flashpoint for anti-Semitic and Islamophobic hate incidents, which have also been uh, rising across the United States since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Brian Todd is monitoring these very disturbing developments for us. What's the latest, Brian? Wolf, tensions are boiling tonight at some of America's best-known elite universities, many of which are really struggling to bring anti-Semitism and Islamophobia on campus under control. At Cornell University, classes canceled Friday in the wake of the arrest of a student for making disturbing anti-Semitic threats. While students say they're breathing a sigh of relief. We're still scared. We're glad he's in custody, but there's still certainly a fearful environment. A 21-year-old junior at Cornell, Patrick Dye, is in custody and has not yet entered a plea. Prosecutors say in online posts he threatened to kill Jewish students at Cornell and to shoot up a mainly kosher dining hall on campus. One prominent Jewish advocate says this about the cancellation of classes at the university. A day off is not the answer. I'm not saying that it's the wrong decision. There is a lot of stress at Cornell, but the response that has to come is some moral clarity on campuses and the recognition that what we're seeing now is related to Hamas's attack on October 7th. It's an unwillingness to simply call out that terror. Cornell's president says the school is now enhancing its efforts to combat anti-Semitism, but it's one of several universities in America struggling tonight to deal with an inundation of protest, anger, and fear prompted by the Israel-Hamas war. Those emotions have sometimes led to threats and outright violence. 
The events in, in Israel and Gaza have always been a touch point for individuals in the U.S., uh, and there's a lot of passion there, and sometimes that translates into violence. At Columbia University in New York, dozens of students staged a walkout on Wednesday of a class in which Hillary Clinton was lecturing. Their protest over the fact that some Columbia students were publicly labeled anti-Semites after they'd signed an anti-Israel statement. Columbia's president has now announced a task force to combat anti-Semitism. A similar effort undertaken at the University of Pennsylvania, whose president has been under pressure to resign over a Palestinian literary conference at the school held before the war started. It's being driven by the fact that they're worried about the extent to which they're losing their donors, they're losing their funding. Top law enforcement officials are also tracking a huge spike in Islamophobia in the U.S. since the war started. Harassment, threats, violence against Muslims, an advocate says, for expressing solidarity with the Palestinian people. Nationwide CARES National Office has reported almost 800 and counting bias-based incidents targeting Muslims, Palestinians, and Arabs across the country over the last three and a half weeks. And the colleges are also feeling additional pressure from outside their campuses. Some of the nation's most powerful law firms have written a letter to America's elite universities, warning them to crack down on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, strongly implying they won't hire students who take part in that. Wolf? Brian Todd reporting. Brian, thank you very, very much. Coming up. My report on uh, the Israelis keeping hope alive on behalf of hostages who lost their entire families in the Hamas terror attack. You're going to hear their powerful support for those who can't speak for themselves. We'll do that right after a quick break. It's now been nearly a month since Hamas kidnapped more than 200 people as it carried out its deadly October 7th attack. The carnage left entire communities in Israel devastated, and for some captives, no family left to speak on their behalf. Today, I had the chance to meet with one Israeli woman keeping hope alive. Here in Tel Aviv, family and friends come to honor and raise awareness about their loved ones who are missing and being held hostage by Hamas. But some families don't have anyone to speak for them. I'm here on behalf of the Trupano family, um, basically because there's no one else left from the family to stand for, up for them. Honestly, I couldn't bear it. These are just good, honest people. Every member of the Trupano family was killed or kidnapped from the near Oz Kibbutz on October 7th, according to Israeli officials. This is grandmother Irena, Irena Tati. She's a pediatrician, a children's doctor. I know that. You know, if there are kids there, she's taking care of them. This is Lena. Lena is the mother, Elena. Uh, we saw her uh, on the video that Hamas released uh, three days ago. So you know she's alive. We know she's Are alive. Never... Sasha is Lena's son. He's 27. His birthday is uh, up in nine days. Uh, Sasha is a brilliant young engineer. And he had his girlfriend, Sapir. They recently moved in together. And she was with him visiting his parents for the weekend. Vitali, Sasha's father, and Yelena's husband can't speak for his family. He was murdered by Hamas. His body was found 10 days later, um, after October 7th, right at the outskirts of uh, Gaza. Grossbar told us the Tupanovs have no other relatives in Israel. They moved here more than 25 years ago after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There's a saying in Hebrew, and we say, Bnei Israel, Arevim Zelazeh which basically means that we stand up for each other and we vouch for each other. 
I'm also a third generation to two Holocaust survivors. Um, something about this story, I, I, I couldn't bear it. Shiri Grossbard worked with Sasha and grew up in a different kibbutz. Since the terror attacks, she's been volunteering at the family forum to raise awareness about the Trupanov story. When you live on kibbutz, then everyone's your family. The Niroz kibbutz was hit particularly hard. Out of the 400 people living there on October 7th, it is believed dozens were killed and kidnapped. I think in a lot of people's minds, they're moving to, towards the situation that's happening right now with Gaza, with the military and everything, but we're still here. They're still there, and we need to keep speaking up. Are you at all hopeful that these people will come home? I am 100% sure we're not having it any other way. These are our people. Of course we'll bring them home, 100%. And if you saw that long table with all those empty chairs, which, which, which we all saw today, uh, that was a Shabbat dinner that they're preparing when all 248 hostages come back to Israel. That's why they set up that long table with all those empty chairs right there. Coming up, an Israeli assault lights up the skies dramatically over Gaza just a little while ago, as the IDF now says it has Gaza City completely surrounded. We'll have live reporting from the region just ahead. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. Happening now, breaking news. Northern Gaza bombarded in a new Israeli assault, lighting up the sky with flares and covering the ground with choking smoke. The air and ground war is clearly intensifying as Israeli forces now say they have Gaza City completely surrounded. Also tonight, as more Americans and other civilians are allowed, finally, to escape Gaza into Egypt, Hamas has a new warning about the hostages it's holding in the battered territory. They're threatening, they're appearing to threaten them with, quote, death and destruction. And in the United States tonight, Donald Trump is lashing out after back-to-back -back court testimony by his sons Eric and Don Jr. We're going to tell you what they said under oath in the civil fraud trial against their family business and key facts they claim they could not recall. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer in Tel Aviv, Israel, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. Right now, we're keeping a very close eye on the skies over Gaza after the truly extraordinary images of war we saw here on CNN just a little while ago, with flares raining down for some 30 minutes as Israel appeared to unleash an intense new assault in its battle against Hamas. Our correspondents uh, are standing by here in the Middle East, as well as in the United States. First, I want to go with, to CNN's Nick Robertson. He had a direct view of the bombardment of Gaza as it was underway from his position in Sderot, Israel, not far from Gaza. Nick, tell our viewers more about what you saw and what's happening there now. 
Yeah, Wolf, we just had a very heavy detonation coming from the direction of Beit Hanun, where all those flares were dropping a short time ago. We've seen tank fire as well going across the horizon behind me in the same direction and have been hearing heavy machine gun fire. It sounds like exchanges of heavy machine gun fire going on in that same area around Beit Hanun. I just heard another detonation there. We're hearing the sounds of outgoing artillery. I'm hearing the sounds of fighter jets in the sky, which means there could be other flashes and illuminations as their strikes take place right around now. But earlier on, half an hour of illumination over Beit Hanun with these flares on the ground. The ground was shrouded in this thick battle smoke. It gave the impression that the IDF was maneuvering troops around Beit Hanun, which is a densely populated town right, e right in the northeastern corner of Gaza, two and a half miles behind us, a few miles away from the even bigger and more densely populated city of Gaza City. Um, there were at that time also explosions, detonations. Um, it really creates the impression that the IDF, who have many, many forces, we don't don't know how many troops are on the ground at the moment, but many and substantial forces inside the Gaza Strip right now were focusing a military effort around Beit Hanun. And I believe that is what we're hearing right now, the continuation of that wolf. All right, stay safe over there. Nick Robertson reporting for us. Nick, appreciate it very, very much. All this uh, as Gaza is hit from the air and on the ground, the Biden administration is sending an increasingly blunt message to Israel. The Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, on his way to the region right now. CNN's MJ Lee is over at the White House for us uh, getting new information. MJ, what are you learning? Well, Wolf, these images coming out of Gaza right now are exactly uh, what is fueling the growing concerns here at the White House about the mounting death toll and the humanitarian suffering in Gaza. And sources tell CNN uh, that the Israeli airstrikes at the Jabalia airstrike, uh, airstrikes this week at the Jabalia refugee camp, rather, uh, that those were particularly concerning and jarring for President Biden and his top advisors, and that there is a growing recognition here at the White House that Israel may have limited time uh, to continue on with this current operation before uh, the uproar over the civilian suffering becomes untenable. Uh, to that end, Wolf, we are told that President Biden and his top uh, U.S. officials have been warning their Israeli counterparts of what they see as this reality and that with growing bluntness, they have been saying that the international community uh, will judge Israel harshly unless they take significant steps to try to ease some of that civilian suffering. Uh, as you noted, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is headed to the area now and he did say that he would be discussing concrete steps to try to minimize civilian suffering. Here's what he said. We will be talking about concrete steps uh, that can and should be taken to minimize harm to men, women and children uh, in, uh, in Gaza. Uh, and this is something that the United States is committed to. We will focus as well on steps that need to be taken uh, to protect civilians who are in a crossfire of, of Hamas's making. 
We are also told that some of President Biden's advisors believe uh, that there are just weeks, not months, before the public calls for the U.S. government to call for a ceasefire from Israel becomes untenable. We, of course, saw that play out at a fundraiser that President Biden attended last night. Uh, but for now, U.S. officials are avoiding using that term, publicly calling for a ceasefire, and instead saying that they would advocate for humanitarian pauses. These are pauses that U.S. officials say would be limited in scope and also limited in duration. And officials here say that those pauses would be helpful not just for getting in humanitarian aid into Gaza, but for hopefully at some point getting hostages out of Gaza as well. Wolf. I'm Jay Lee at the White House for us. Uh, thank you very much. I quickly want to go back to CNN's Nick Robertson. He's in Sterot, Israel, not far from Gaza. Nick, a quick question. How has the situation on the ground changed since the U.S. Secretary of State's visit? Um, it's deteriorated significantly since uh, Secretary Blinken's visit uh, several weeks ago. There was a sense in the air when he was here that a ground offensive on uh, Gaza could be avoided, that there might be an off-ramp in the situation. The United States was giving that absolutely strong and clear and loud support for Israel, saying that it had every right to strike back. Privately, though, urging caution. Now these urges of caution to avoid civilian casualties because the casualties now in Gaza, more than 9,000 civilians dead, according to the Hamas-led Palestinian Ministry of Health. There are more than 22,000 civilians injured in Gaza, they say. This now is changing the narrative from, from the White House. So when Secretary Blinken arrives here in just a few hours' time, um, perhaps we're going to hear a more public message urging this caution, urging Israel to set out a clear vision of how it sees this current situation will end. We know that the Hamas leader, Ismail Haniyeh, who is now, right now, in Tehran, uh, meeting with the Iranian foreign minister, has laid out a political vision. No doubt that vision is, is a propaganda tool for what Hamas wants to, wants to achieve here. But this is uh, uh, his vision, he says, uh, and what he's laying out, he says very clearly there will be death and destruction for uh, the hostages just as in Gaza right now, just as, the same, just as it is for the civilians uh, uh, and Hamas inside Gaza. He, this vision, he says, um, is one that calls for an immediate ceasefire. He says the Prime Minister of Israel is lying to his people that Hamas is offering an immediate ceasefire, a prisoner exchange. It wants the borders with Israel to be opened, and it also wants there to be a Palestinian, a viable Palestinian state with Jerusalem at its capital. This is very much the language Hamas has been using in recent years, but specifically now, uh, as Secretary Blinken arrives, this is the narrative, if you will, this is the propaganda that Hamas is trying to put forward a political platform uh, as, he, as they meet uh, with, with officials in Tehran, which of course is going to cause a lot of speculation about why they're meeting at this time, Wolf. Yeah, and my own sense uh, right now, based on a briefing I had earlier today with the senior Israeli military officer, is that the Israelis are also sending a direct message to Hezbollah in Lebanon and to Iran, their patron for that matter as well, basically the message being, don't mess with Israel.
If you do, you're going to be finding yourself in the same fate as uh, Hamas is finding itself in Gaza with this intense Israeli aerial bombardment and ground forces moving in. Uh, this is a really dramatic moment in this uh, development, in this war right now. Nick Robertson, thanks very much. Also breaking tonight, a Hamas leader, as we heard, is warning that hostages being held in Gaza are subject to the same death and destruction, their words, as other civilians in the territory. And this comes as more Americans and other foreign nationals are getting out of Gaza through that critical Rafah border crossing in the south into Egypt. CNN's Melissa Bell is joining us from Cairo right now. Melissa, how many people got out of Gaza today and how many more are waiting? About 340 got out uh, today. And what we understand, Wolf, is that so far there have been 74 Americans uh, who've made it out of the Rafah crossing. That will continue. It's a very chaotic uh, process. What they are bringing with them, though, are tales of what's going on inside. Bear in mind, Wolf, that these are largely aid workers or Palestinian Americans or uh, other uh, nationalities who happen to be in Gaza visiting family or they live there. And what they're bringing out with them is a much clearer picture of what's been going on, both in terms of the lack of food, water, sanitation, the living conditions for people inside the Gaza Strip, but also the effects of what we've been seeing over the course of the last few days, that intense bombing campaign, uh, the uh, strikes against the Jabalia camp. We've been hearing uh, from aid organizations as well, much more loudly today, uh, about that call for a humanitarian pause, uh, describing those strikes on the Jabalia camp as potential war crimes, that chorus of indignation and of calls for restraint really going louder uh, by the hour and by the day. What we understand is going to continue happening is that uh, the uh, uh, foreign nationals will continue to come out, as will a handful of the most wounded, uh, severely wounded Palestinians. There have been a few dozen of them. We expect that to continue as well. Meanwhile, Wolf, uh, one of the other issues on Secretary Blinken's plate when he's going to be arrived beyond urging uh, the possible restraint that we've been talking about tonight is going to be trying to figure out how they can get more humanitarian aid in. We understand there are just over 300 trucks of humanitarian aid that have made it in since this conflict began to be clear, Wolf, uh, that is uh, fewer trucks than would have entered Gaza before the war began. And I think that gives you an important idea of the shortfall of some of the very basics that are uh, inside the Gaza Strip right now. It isn't just food and water. It isn't just what is needed for sanitation. What we're talking about are medical supplies to treat some of the wounded. And within the last hour, we've been hearing from some of those aid organizations who reckon that there may be even now at least a thousand children trapped under rubble and in need of rescuing. And I think that gives you an idea, it paints a picture of their fears for what's happening inside and the urgent need uh, that there is for a humanitarian ceasefire wolf. Important. All right, Melissa Bell reporting from Cairo. Thank you very much. Just ahead, there's more news we're following. We'll have more of the breaking news, the coverage that we've had on the latest steps in this Israel-Hamas war and the billions of dollars in funding for Israel that just got passed in the U.S. House of Representatives. Without Plus, two of Donald Trump's children testify in a trial that potentially could see the president, the former president, take the stand next week. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. We're following the breaking news here in the Middle East. Israel unleashing an intense wave of air attacks against Hamas targets in Gaza. More on that in just a moment. There's also breaking news right now. We're following in the U.S. House of Representatives. Lawmakers have just passed what's called a standalone bill 
funding aid to Israel without additional help for Ukraine. And that's setting up a major class with the, a clash with the U.S. Senate and the White House. CNN's Melanie Zanona is tracking all of the action up on Capitol Hill for us. Give us the latest, Melanie. Well, Wolf, you're right. The House did just pass this $14 billion aid package for Israel, but it was passed mostly along party lines. The final vote tally, two Republicans voted against it and 12 Democrats broke ranks to support it. And the reason why Democratic leaders were against this bill is because of how Speaker Mike Johnson assembled the bill and put it together. First of all, he decided to exclude Ukraine money, which has become divisive in the House Republican conference. But he also decided to include partisan spending cuts for the IRS. Really an unusual move, Wolf, that we don't typically see. You don't typically see emergency supplemental funding conditioned upon anything. And so Democrats balked at that. Most of them ended up opposing it. And the White House even issued a veto threat. So it's pretty clear that this bill is going nowhere in the Democratic-controlled Senate. But Speaker Mike Johnson has really defended his approach. And he has framed this as Democrats now siding with the IRS over Israel. So, of course, both sides playing politics here. This bill has passed the House, but its fate in the Senate, very uncertain, Wolf. And none of that money is going to go to Israel unless it passes the Senate and then the president has to sign it into law. All of that very questionable right now. Melanie Zanona, thank you very much for that update. Uh, I want to get some more now on all the breaking news uh, with the top Democrat, uh, a key member of the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Jim Himes, is joining us. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I want to get to the passage of the, uh, this Israeli aid package, uh, the passage of it, in just a moment. But first, let me get your reaction to these extraordinary images we've been seeing in Gaza, an apparent massive Israeli air assault into northern Gaza. First of all, what do you make of this? Well, this is, uh, would appear, Wolf, to be the start of Israel's long-planned offensive, uh, so not terribly surprising. We've been watching it pretty closely. Um, and, uh, you know, this is what Israel is going to do to make sure that Hamas, which visited so much horror and tragedy onto Israel on October 7th, um, that they are brought to justice. Uh, now, as you know, the other side of this, of course, is that since October 7th, the President, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, and lots of us have been making the point that while justified, this needs to be done with uh, due consideration to humanitarian concerns. And of course, now the Secretary of State will be going over there uh, to make that point. Um, explicit to uh, uh, to his Israeli counterparts. Yeah, he's going to be arriving momentarily. We're told uh, this is almost, it's already Friday here in Israel, and he's going to have a lot of meetings with the top Israeli military and political leadership. As you know, Congressman CNN has learned that President Biden and his top advisors have begun bluntly warning Israel that the civilian death toll in Gaza is putting increasing pressure on the U.S. government to publicly call for a ceasefire. President Biden has not yet done that, and that Israel has weeks, not months, before that happens. What's your reaction to a, a potential call by the U.S. government for a ceasefire? Well, Wolf, I'd be very surprised if that would happen. Um, you know, the advocates for a ceasefire, and I understand where they're coming from, they see the carnage of war uh, and they say this has got to stop. I understand where they're coming from, but I think any right-thinking person would say that the brutal murderers who visited such pain and tragedy on Israel on October 7th must be brought to justice. And if you argue for a ceasefire, you then need to answer the question, how do you bring these monsters who will use a ceasefire, and, and by the way, this is not me, this is them saying that they will use 
use a ceasefire to rearm, to reorganize in the, in, you know, with the intention of doing this again to Israel. So uh, the key here, Wolf, uh, and what the president has been very clear on from moment one is that you know, the Israelis shouldn't act out of rage and emotion. They shouldn't believe that bringing justice to Hamas has to be accomplished in three weeks or four weeks. They need to do it consistent with the laws of armed conflict and humanitarian considerations. That's the morally right thing to do. And as you pointed out, the political pressure, if the Israelis are seen to be acting out of retribution, out of emotion, the political pressure will mount. And by the way, the other consideration here is that there are probably things that would provoke Hezbollah or Iran to get more involved. And of course, that is an outcome that is very, very bad for everybody. Yeah, and that's an important point as well. Do you believe, Congressman, that Israel is doing enough to minimize civilian casualties in Gaza? Well, Wolf, I, I worry about that, honestly. Um, you know, as we learned in places like Fallujah, in the, uh, this is a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, and as I see the imagery, of course, as a human being, my heart goes out to the civilians who are uh, mixed up in that. So I don't know the answer to your question because you're asking a question that has everything to do with, you know, how precisely are they targeting and that sort of thing. What I can tell you is that, um, and I think this position is consistent with the entire administration's, you know, Israel needs to go step by step and very carefully so that they not only do everything they can do to preserve civilian life, but so that they are perceived as doing so. Because if they are perceived as not doing so, both the political and the regional strategic problems get very ugly. As you know, President Biden says he believes it's time for what he calls a pause, not a ceasefire, but a pause in this war between Israel and Hamas. Do you agree? Uh, I do. And in fact, um, you know, uh, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy made this point, uh, I think, four or five days ago, that the Israelis should be open and should allow for pauses that would allow for the movement of innocent people, that would allow for negotiations for hostages. Remember, the hostages, you know, are there and subject to the, um, the violence that, that is going on in Gaza, uh, and that would allow the inflow of water, medicines, uh, and all of those things that the civilians of Gaza need. Without a pause, and, and you know, look, pause could mean geographic, it could, it could you know, go long or short, but without uh, those pauses to set up safe areas, safe convoys, safe transit of civilians, um, the outcome will be far from what we would hope it would be. Uh, you just voted against uh, what's called the standalone uh, $14.3 billion aid package for Israel, like almost all of the other Democrats in the House of Representatives. Tell us why. Yeah, well, there's a bunch of reasons for the no vote. First of all, um, you know, I have always voted in support of aid for Israel, and aid for Israel has always not had conditions on it. Now this bill, uh, and I'll come back to this, because this is the first time we've seen in a very long time that an emergency bill, and boy, is this an emergency, comes with a pay-for, right? And a pay-for is, uh, in this case, a democratic policy priority. So people need to step back and think, wait a minute, emergency legislation is now in the Congress of the United States going to be subject to, well, yeah, yeah, we'll fund Israel's effort here, but we also want to achieve this policy win against the opposite party. That is a very dangerous path to go down. The bill did not contain humanitarian aid, which we've just spent the last four minutes talking about in terms of its importance. And of course, splitting Israel from Ukraine reflects the fact that they are pandering, they being the Republicans, to the roughly 50% of House Republicans who don't want to help Ukraine in its fight against Russia. None of those things are good, Wolf, in my opinion, uh, and that's why I voted against this bill. 
It did narrowly pass the House of Representatives, but it's not going to be appropriated for Israel until it passes the Senate and then the president has to sign it into law. Both of those uh, possibilities pretty remote right now. Congressman Jim Himes, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Will. Stay safe. And coming up, Donald Trump's family is taking the stand in the civil fraud trial against the former president and his company. The latest on all the courtroom drama, and it's very dramatic right after the break. We'll have much more on all the breaking news out of Israel and Gaza in just a few moments, but we're also following another major story back in the United States. Court has wrapped up for the day in New York City, and Eric Trump, though, is expected back on the stand in the morning in the civil fraud case against him, his family, and their business. CNN's Kara Scannell is outside the courthouse in Manhattan watching all of this unfold. Kara, what was your biggest takeaway from another contentious day for the Trumps in court? Well, Wolf, it was remarkable that both Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump were both on the stand today, and they both testified that they had nothing to do with the financial statements that are at the center of this lawsuit. Donald Trump Jr. was up first. He said that he relied on accountants and lawyers, and he, even though the judge has already found these statements to be fraudulent, he said he believed the values on them were materially correct. Now, Eric Trump went further, saying that he wasn't aware of these financial statements until the attorney general's office launched their investigation. Well, that prompted the attorney general's lawyer to spend one and a half hours nearly asking Eric Trump about emails, some of them going back to 2010, and also showing clips of his deposition from earlier this year, where he was asked questions, denying any knowledge of the statements, confronting him with the email showing that he actually did provide one valuation of $200 million for a golf course. But Eric Trump stood by his testimony, growing agitated at times and a bit adamant, saying that he did not know about the financial statements. He did provide information, but he said it never registered to him that the information he gave to the, the internal accountants would be used in the financial statement. So both of the brothers distancing themselves from this, and it became even more heated at the end of the day when one of Donald Trump's attorneys objected to a line of questioning toward Eric Trump, and he referenced how the judge's clerk, who has been a figure in this case because there's a gag order against the former president for statements he's made about her, he referenced a note that was being passed to the judge, and that really upset the judge, who was saying he might expand the gag order beyond Donald Trump to include the attorneys, and he said that Trump's lawyers had no right to know about the confidential notes that they were sharing between each other, saying that she's a civil servant and she should be left alone. Wolf? Interesting. Kara, his, as his sons were testifying, I think this is interesting, the former president falsely claimed they were being persecuted. What exactly is he alleging? Well, the former president issued yet another statement on his social media platform attacking this proceedings, this lawsuit, attacking the judge and the attorney general's office for the litigation here. And he's making this statement because both of his sons have been called to testify, as has his daughter, Ivanka Trump. She is due to testify next week after the former president himself will sit in this courtroom behind me and answer questions under oath. That is expected to take place on Monday. Uh, but he did steer clear of the gag order that's in place. He did not make any comments about the judge's staff, uh, despite this becoming an issue at the end of the day in court. But we'll be back in court tomorrow, starting again at 10 a.m., where Eric Trump will continue testifying under oath. Wolf. 
We'll see what happens then. Kara Scannell in New York. Thank you very much. Right now, I want to bring in uh, our CNN anchor and chief legal analyst, Laura Coates, and CNN legal analyst, Norm Eisen. Laura, this is not a, a jury trial. The judge will make the ultimate decision. Has he shown any signs during the course of the testimony about which way he could rule? Well, he certainly showed his hand when he ruled for a summary judgment, which is essentially a way of saying, look, I'm going to resolve the, one of the biggest parts of this case before this part of the trial even begins, and that's whether the documents themselves were fraudulent. Having done that, now the attention is turned to essentially how expensive this might be or whatever penalty might ensue based on how the information was used or intended to be used. And so certainly that is a show of hand, but he certainly seems to be very, very clear that he is not going to tolerate consistent or even sporadic attacks against members of his staff, including a clerk. And he is showing a very, very concerted effort to ensure that they know that he means business when it comes to focusing on this particular case, this particular matter, and not trying to use the courtroom as some sort of a circus tent. Interesting. Norm, uh, Eric Trump clearly grew frustrated with the prosecutor's questions earlier today. We know emotional testimony can impact a jury, but what about a judge? This is not a jury trial. Uh, well, in this case, the judge will make a credibility decision, Wolf. He's going to decide whether he believes Eric Trump, Don Jr., and the other members of the Trump family. And Eric grew flustered today because he was confronted over and over again with evidence, emails and other proof where he claimed he was not involved. And then they showed him that he was involved. And so uh, the judge may very well read that as a token of dishonesty that happened with Don Jr. It happened more strongly with Eric. And I think we're likely to see a finding of low credibility that will be very hard to attack on appeal. That's one of the toughest things because it's based on the judge's eyewitness observation. Laura, when former President Trump uh, takes the stand, and we expect he will take the stand sometime next week, can he plead the fifth for every question or will he be required to answer some questions? Well, here's the risk of pleading the fifth. And by the way, taking a step back, how extraordinary to think that you'd hear from a former president of the United States taking the stand in a civil fraud trial in his hometown of New York for a quarter of, I think, a billion dollars as a potential liability and fine. His adult children, at least several of them, already testifying and Ivanka appealing this process to see whether she ultimately has to testify. It's very extraordinary to think about that, just taking a step back. But if he does testify, here's a risk in a civil trial as opposed to a criminal context. If this were a criminal prosecution, Wolf, him saying that he um, was pleading the fifth could not be used against him. It'd be one's right to be able to do so. In a civil context, you can do what's called um, draw an adverse inference based on that assertion of the fifth. What does that mean? It means that I can essentially assume as the fact finder or the judge or jury, the judge in this case, of course, that why you're not answering the question or what you would ultimately say if you were forced to answer that question is not going to be good for you. And so it, it creates a, a really important rock in a hard place conversation for any litigant or any defendant to take that stand. 
Interesting. Our Laura Coates and Norma Meisen, thanks to both of you very much. Important note, Laura will be back later tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern, for her program, Laura Coates Live. It's an important show. We'll watch it. Thanks. Just ahead, a senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, will join us live here in Tel Aviv as we witness a new assault that's lit up the skies over Gaza. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. We're getting more now on the breaking news here in the Middle East. CNN hearing constant gunfire near the Israeli-Gaza border after an intense new Israeli air bombardment with flares lighting up the sky over northern Gaza. Joining us now from Tel Aviv, Mark Regev, a senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we've been watching this extraordinary image of an apparent Israeli assault on northern Gaza what can you tell us about what is taking place right now? Because the airstrikes seem to have been, they continue for half an hour nonstop. So obviously, while military operations are ongoing, I can't go into any detail, rather, other than to say that we're keeping the pressure up on Hamas. We are hitting its military machine. Our goal is, as you know, Wolf, is to destroy Hamas's military machine and to dismantle its political control over Gaza. After the horrific attack that we endured on October 7th, when they massacred our people, uh, they raped, they burnt babies alive, they, they shot young people in a pit uh, who were attending an, a, a festival, a music festival. We refuse to have to endure that sort of violence ever again. And the only way to protect the Israeli people is to eliminate this threat, the, the threat that Hamas poses. President Biden called Hamas sheer evil, and evil needs to be eradicated. As you know, uh, at least I suspect Israel is also trying to send a message right now with this intense aerial assault on northern Gaza. Uh, and I say that because Hezbollah's leader is scheduled to make an important address tomorrow. Is Israel sending a message to Hezbollah in, in Lebanon? I'd send a message to Hezbollah now. Uh, I'd say to them, don't. I think I'm repeating what President Biden said. Don't. Don't escalate the situation in the north. We have no interest in, in a two-front war. But if you start one, if Hezbollah forces us to respond, we will respond forcibly and decisively. I hope cooler heads will prevail in Tehran and in Beirut. I don't think anyone has an interest in another war. If we're forced to fight, we will. But let me make it clear, we prefer to avoid that. We want to concentrate on what needs to be done in Gaza. We fought two two-front wars in the past, in 1967, in 1973. We will prevail in a two-front war. We prefer, however, to avoid it. We're watching very closely. We're mobilized. We're ready. I hope, as I said a moment ago, that more uh, uh, rational minds prevail both in Tehran and in Beirut. Yeah, the, the suspicion that I have is Israel sending a message, don't mess with Israel right now, because if you see what's going on with Hamas in Gaza, you're going to see even worse to Hezbollah in Lebanon. CNN has learned, Mark, that the White House has begun bluntly warning Israel that the civilian death toll in Gaza is increasing 
putting pressure on the U.S. government to publicly call for a ceasefire, which the U.S. has not yet done, and that Israel has weeks, not months, before that potentially happens. What's your reaction to that? So we believe we can do two things at the same time. On one hand, we will relentlessly pursue our campaign against Hamas. There can be no giving up on that. There can be no giving Hamas a breather. We will continue to, to ratchet up the pressure on Hamas. Uh, uh, that, is a, that is a given. In parallel at the same time, we'll make every effort to keep civilians out of the crossfire. We don't target Gaza's civilian population and we want to see them safe. That's why for days now, for longer, for two and a half weeks now, we've been calling on the residents of northern Gaza where their intensive fighting is happening. We've been calling on them to relocate to the south to safer areas. We've been talking to the Americans and others about establishing a, a, a safer zone on the western tip of the southern area of the Gaza Strip, next to the coast, not far from the Rafah crossing where the aid is coming in. We don't target Gaza civilians and we're doing our utmost to try to keep them out of the, out of the crossfire. Mark Regev, thanks as usual for joining us. My pleasure, Wolf. And coming up, fellow Republicans turn on uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville in their first showdown on the Senate floor over his months-long blockade of U.S. military promotions. Tonight, Senate Republicans are vowing to keep the pressure up on Tommy Tuberville after they vented their anger over his hold on U.S. military nominations. CNN's Manu Raju has our report. Wolf, tonight for the first time we are seeing Republican anger spill out into public view, trying to pressure Tommy Tuberville to back down over his blockade that has now led to nearly 400 military nominees to be stalled, unable to get their promotions. But Tuberville tells me tonight he is not backing down. Tommy Tuberville defiant. So has any of this caused you to change no. your approach? No. Despite growing anger from within the GOP over the Alabama senator's nine-month blockade, denying nearly 400 military personnel their promotions, all over his demand that the Pentagon scrap its policy, reimbursing service members traveling out of state for reproductive services, including abortions. This is doing great damage to our military. I don't say that lightly. We're going to look back at this episode and just be stunned. What a national security suicide mission this became. For the first time, GOP senators taking their fury to the floor, trying to shame Tuberville and force him to allow key personnel to take their jobs. But Tuberville single-handedly blocked 61 nominees from getting confirmed. With that, Madam President, object. Object. Is there objection? Madam President. The senator from Alabama. Object. Even as GOP leaders are ready to move on. But I think Senator Tuberville's made his point. If you want to do this, go after the people who are making the policy, uh, not the people who have nothing to do with it and are simply there trying to do their jobs and keep our country safe. Do you support his stand? I want to get these people confirmed. Many Republicans raising alarms. It's a dangerous time. We need to field our entire national security team, including these military officers who deserve their promotions. We're going to see repercussions from this for probably the next decade to come. Yet some blaming their own leaders. What should the Republican leaders do? 
Uh, but like actually get a solution? I mean, what, what are they good for? I mean, what's Mitch McConnell doing here? The former Auburn football coach insists his holds are having no impact on the military and says he is simply trying to kill a policy he says is illegal. But it's the only way I can get their attention. And I hate, I have to, I've told you all along, I hate to have to do this. But somebody has got to listen to us, okay? Tuberville's hold gaining new attention after the Marine Corps Commandant Eric Smith was hospitalized. He had been working 18-hour days and two jobs to fill a vacancy caused by the Tuberville blockade. Aren't you making it harder for them to, to do their job? Yeah, 2,000 people that work for him, okay? So, uh, and somebody said he's working 18 hours a day. Jack Reed blamed me for his heart attack. Come on, give me a break. This guy's going to work 18, 20 hours a day no matter what. That's what we do. You know, I did that for years. Now, Tupperville has said for months that the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer can simply schedule votes on individual nominations, something Schumer has not wanted to do given the time that it takes to do so. Schumer now is trying to take matters in his own hands, trying to change the Senate rules in order to advance a whole swoop of nominees doing it in one large block. But there's one issue. He needs Republican support to do so, meaning 60 votes in the United States Senate. Expect next week to be this to be a huge issue as Republicans meet behind closed doors to debate their next steps and Schumer trying to pressure the Republicans to back this change. Wolf. Manu up on Capitol Hill. Thank you very, very much. Just ahead, there's more news we're following. There's been a rise in hate incidents around the world, including a Jewish cemetery in Vienna. That was set on fire and defaced with Nazi swastikas. We'll have a live report from Austria. That's next. The Israel-Hamas war has led to an uptick in anti-Semitic incidents around the world decades after the Holocaust. A Jewish cemetery in Austria was set on fire and desecrated with Nazi swastikas. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Pleiken is joining us live from Vienna right now. Fred, tell us what you're seeing in Vienna and elsewhere. Well, it certainly, Wolf, is a troubling development that we're seeing here in Austria and indeed in many other countries uh, across Europe where there is a rise in anti-Semitic incidents. And I think a lot of the Jewish communities, certainly a lot of the ones that we're speaking to, say that they do feel very vulnerable and a lot of them, quite frankly, feel reminded of times in the 1930s when things were really going badly for Jewish people here on the European continent. And one of the things that really stuck out to, to us today as we were there on that cemetery, there was a swastika that was spray painted on a wall there, but also the ceremonial hall of that uh, of that cemetery the jewish part of the cemetery had been set on fire there were some very valuable holy scriptures uh, that were that were reduced to ashes but the thing that really stood out wolf to us was that the jewish community there told us that the last time that that building had ever been set on fire was in 1938 during Reichskristallnacht, during Kristallnacht, which is, of course, almost to the day, 85 years ago. And certainly there are a lot of people here in the Jewish community in Austria who say that right now they believe that things are going in a very bad direction for the Jews here in this country. There's only about a community of 10,000 to 13,000 Jews here in Austria, but they say that since October 7th, since uh, Hamas's terror attack against uh, that area in southern Israel, that they've seen around a 300% 
percent increase in incidents of anti-Semitic nature. And certainly we're seeing similar things in other countries as well. Certainly things that we've been hearing from the Jewish community, for instance, in Berlin, Germany. But of course, we saw also houses uh, that were had David stars or stars of David spray painted on them in places like Paris and many incidents around Europe. And I was able to speak, Wolf, uh, to the head of the European Jewish Association. And he said right now he's calling on European leaders to do more to protect Jews here on the European continent, Wolf. Horrible situation indeed. Fred Pleitkin in Vienna, Austria for us. Thank you very much for that report. And to our viewers, thanks very much for watching. I'm Wolf Blitzer in Tel Aviv. I'll be back tomorrow in Tel Aviv as well. In the meantime, Aaron Burnett out front starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.